Good morning, church. You have the text in your bulletin, at least the reference, Revelation 14, 8, but I'm going to ask you to turn first to Luke chapter 1. That's page 856 in the Pew Bibles provided for you, 856. I think Luke chapter 1, early in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Put your finger there, hold that place, and then you can turn all the way to the back of the Bible, Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. I'll tell you why we're doing this if you're new with us. We've been studying through the book of Revelation for a number of months, and it's been my habit not to depart from whatever book we're studying during Advent because I think it's important for the people of God to understand that Jesus is throughout the Scriptures, that we don't take a break from Jesus throughout the rest of the year and then focus on Him at Christmas, but that uh, Christ is throughout Scripture. Christ is, as our text says, the eternal gospel. God has forever, for all of eternity, decided to save a people for Himself by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We notice that in chapter 13, verse 8 of Revelation. The Lamb of God has been slain from the foundation of the world. The giving of Christ was not an afterthought. This was God's eternal plan. And so we've taken verses from this first part of chapter 14 of Revelation, all focused on what Jesus came to accomplish and we've cross-referenced them back to announcements about Him at Advent. Last week, we talked about Jesus is the eternal reconciler. That reconciliation is described in this, in this text in Revelation chapter 14. He's come to be the Savior of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we noticed that that was announced when Jesus was announced to the shepherds that He would be a Savior for all the people. Today, I want us to focus on Jesus as the promised mighty God, that there has never been a time in all of eternity when God's might has not been leveraged for our redemption. God's might has always been utilized for the design, for the execution, uh, for the application of our redemption. So Jesus appeared And Jesus didn't have to convince the Father mightily to save us, but Jesus is the proof that God is always determined that He would save us and save us mightily, and not just now, but into all of eternity. We've been focusing throughout the book of Revelation on this one theme, this one point made by the book of Revelation, Jesus wins. It's always been God's agenda to win through Jesus. So I'm going to read from Revelation 14, and then I'm going to turn you back to Luke chapter 1. Just one verse from Revelation 14. Well, maybe a few more verses. Let's go back to verse 6. Revelation 14. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now Luke chapter 1, verse 46, Mary's song. Here Mary sings about what is going to happen according to Revelation 14.8. Babylon represents everything bad. And Mary says, Jesus has come to do battle with every evil force, all of your enemies. He will win. Little Mary says this, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> Before the days of, of India's independence from the British Empire, Archbishop William Temple forbade his priest in India from reading the Magnificat. This is what we have just read. My soul magnifies the Lord. The Magnificat, the story, the, the, the exultation of Mary at the news that she would be the one to bear the Savior of the world, the Messiah. He forbade his priests to read that in India for fear that it would set forth a rebellion. In Guatemala, as late as the 1980s, the government forbade the Christian church from reading out loud in public this Magnificat, the, the Song of Mary, for fear that it could set off a revolution. What did they see that we often do not see? That what Mary is saying is dangerous. It's dangerous to evil. It's dangerous to oppression. It's dangerous to the kingdom of hell. And so those on the side of evil, those on the side of oppression, those in service to the devil, the devil's minions themselves shudder and shuddered at the words of Mary announcing the mighty coming King Jesus. There's no need to do so, however, if He is your King. If He is your Lord and Savior, you have despaired of your ability to, to earn your righteousness and you've received His gift of righteousness in your place and you've knelt before Him and say, you are now my Lord, tell me to do, do you tell me to do whatever you want me to do, I will do it. And you are resting in that sovereignty. This is good news for you. It tells you 
that the one born of Mary is that Jesus and that Jesus who wins. And then John casts you forward to the end of history, and he says, I want you to look back at what Mary saw, what the prophets saw from long ago. It has happened. It will happen at the end of time. Well, if that is true, what do we do with it? We do what Mary did. She took the battle to the evil one. She didn't run and hide. She didn't uh, shudder with fear. She took the battle to the evil one as the Lord had given her responsibility. She bore witness. She bore the Savior. She raised him up. She testified about him. And she hung around with the disciples after he had died, and she worshiped him upon his resurrection. We take the battle to evil because God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. Just those two points that come as the, there's the outline from Revelation 14a, and we're going to take that outline and we're going to put it down here, superimpose it on Mary's, Mary's song. And that's the two things we see. God humbles the proud and God exalts the humble. Now, what do we mean when we say that he humbles the proud? Where do we get that from Revelation 14, 8, cross-referenced to Mary's word? We get it from one word in Revelation 14, 8. That word is Babylon. God humbles the proud. Well, you say, what is Babylon? I've never heard of it. Exactly. That's why he says Babylon. Babylon at one time was the most powerful kingdom in the, in the world. Everyone shuddered at the name of Babylon. Babylon itself took God's people into captivity and claimed by doing so they demonstrated their sovereignty over Israel's God. But what happened to Babylon? Babylon was destroyed. Babylon is forgotten. And so John uses Babylon, as the rest of the New Testament does, to describe every enemy of God and God's people. Every enemy kingdom, every enemy disease, every enemy force, every enemy, everything that is not ordained of God, everything that has come as a result of the fall, every enemy, he says, will be fallen, will be taken down. Just think about how that has happened in history. There's no kingdom that has exalted itself or put itself up in opposition to the Lord that has remained. No group of people. Think of the great funeral pyre that will be built in front of the judgment seat of Christ at the great day. Who will be stacked on it? Kings and despots and enemies from the Midianites, Amalekites, Philistines, Persians, Babylonians, Goths, Vikings, Irish, English, German, French, Indian, Chinese, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Central America. You get the idea. All of them will be piled up for judgment. All who have raised their hands, their fists against the Lord Christ or against his people. And then how will he do it? How will he, how will he battle them in such a way that the glory is obviously his? He will do it through the most unlikely of people. God, God never likes the odds when it's obvious that his forces are greater 
than the devil's. He only loves the odds. He, in fact, enforces and makes sure that the odds are always, according to our eyes, outnumbering. They're always hopeless. So when Abraham is is threatened by five kings, five powerful kings in the Old Testament, and they're threatening to kill him and destroy the seed of the Savior in his loins, what happens? God raises up Abraham, a shepherd, and he is victorious over those five kings. What about that kingdom of Persia with the wicked, the wicked conspiracy that had determined they were going to wipe out the people of Israel and thus the line through which the Messiah would come? Whom did God choose to save the Jewish people? Not a mighty army, but rather a slave uncle named Mordecai and his niece, Esther. God ensures that the that the uh, odds are against his people, that they are not obviously in favor so that he can get the glory. He describes the way this battle is going to unfold in Revelation chapter 14a. He says that uh, they are going to drink the wrathful wine of Babylon's fornication. They're going to drink the wrathful wine of Babylon's sexual immorality. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's a word picture. He says uh, what he's going to do is uh, he's going to destroy all of his enemies from the inside out. There's no better way to take conquest of another group of people than to make them, make them intoxicated. They stumble to their fall. And God says, I'm going to let them drink the wine of their self-trust. They're going to, I'm going to, I'll leave them to that. They say, they raise their fists against me. They say, nobody can take us down. There is uh, no kingdom greater than ours. Not even God is greater than we are. I'm going to let them drink the wine of that foolishness. Let them stumble to their fall. But because by living so, they live contrary to the way I I cause the world to run. They will inevitably fall into their own mischief and their own pits. And what is sexual immorality? Well, it's obvious it is that literally, but it is also representative of every indulgence. It is not just kings and, and kingdoms, but it is individuals who say, I'm not going to submit to the Lord I'm not going to have him limit my freedoms. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to surrender my will to his and let him determine the way I'm going to live, the way I'm going to engage in relationships, the way I'm going to run my business, the way I'm going to live in this culture. I'm not going to do that. I am going to do what I think is best. And God says, I will leave you to that foolishness. I will leave kingdoms and individuals and peoples to that foolishness. You will fall into your own pits of destruction. And so without, with barely lifting a finger, God daily and century after century brings down his enemies and the enemies of the people of God with the odds 
stacked against us in apparent ways. I want you to look at the confidence of Mary's verbs. Mary doesn't say, oh, I hope this happens. Uh, This is predicted to happen. But she speaks as if it has already occurred. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. You might say, Mary, you are about 13 years old. You are being oppressed by the Romans. You're being taxed to death. You have uh, you, you are pregnant with a child that is going to bring you shame. Who is going to believe that you're conceived uh, by the Holy Spirit? Mary, how in the world can you speak so confidently? And yet she keeps on. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. On the basis of nothing other than the Word of God come into history through Jesus Christ, Mary takes on Herod and all the kings of the earth. You can imagine someone coming into Herod's court and saying, uh, we've got a problem. We've We've got a rebellion brewing down in Nazareth. Well, bring me the intel. Who is it? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a girl named Mary. Well, uh, what, what are her powers? Well, she's 13 years old, and she's, she's poor. Why is she a threat? Because of what she's saying. She's saying that you're going to be brought down. Can you imagine the laughter in his court? But where is Herod? And where are Mary's words? It's not the end of such ridiculous rebellion. It's not the end of such uh, laughable odds that God loves to create. Uh, Let me remind you of dictators like Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan and Adolf Hitler. What happened to them? Yes, there were military there was military opposition, but you really can't explain their downfalls in any other way except the turn of providence against them. And as my friend Andre Sue wrote a number of years ago, uh, as is evidenced by some of the people she speaks of as being alive who are now dead, listen as my friend Andre Sue lined up all of the ones who are no longer here. You forgot about, she says in her opinion piece, you forgot about Haiti's baby Doc Devalier now living on handouts in France. In your discouragement, she said, you've forgotten about Ethiopia's Mariam under tight security in Zimbabwe, Chilean dictator General Pinochet, an old man hunted, Paraguay's General Alfredo Strassner hiding out in Brazil, Uganda's Idi Amin forgotten somewhere in Saudi Arabia, Jean Bedel Bacasa who once crowned himself emperor of the Central African Republic, dressed in robes of shoes of pearl, perched upon a gold-plated throne shaped like an eagle, living in a marble palace lit by chandeliers. His extravagance ruined his country. He was overthrown and fled. 
A number of years ago, I was, I was uh, riding in a, a shuttle in New Jersey with a taxi, and that's what we used to have before Uber and Lyft for the younger ones. It's a thing called a taxi. I was riding in a taxi and from the airport, and and, uh, I, and I, I was trying to witness to the man who was driving me who had just arrived, who just immigrated from Romania. And I said, amazing what's happened in Romania. Nikolai Ceausescu has, 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 has fallen. He was, he was thrown out of power. This absolute dictator thrown out of power, trampled in the streets. I said, how do you think that happened? He said, well, it's obvious how it happened. Everybody knows how it happened. It was a conspiracy with Ronald Reagan and the Pope and, uh, and Mikhail Gorbachev. They got together in a, a, a secret room uh, in, in uh, Iceland, and uh, they hatched this plan, and, and then the next thing you know, Ceausescu is dead. I said, wow, I, I never knew that. I said, I had the idea uh, from some of my friends who were actually there that it was a that it was the result of, uh, of, of a couple of years of concentrated prayer meetings that, that, that came out of secret hiding places in their homes and churches into the streets. And, uh, and the more the government opposed them, the more they prayed. And uh, eventually their prayers were answered by bringing Ceausescu down. And he said, <laughs> that's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Who could believe anything like that? That's exactly the way the Lord loves to work. Some of you, some of us, feel hopeless against evil. It's, it's overwhelming us, you say, from governmental powers around the world. Some of us feel hopeless about what's happening in, in Memphis with with gun violence or, or with prejudice or with, with poverty or hunger or schools or any number of things. Some of you are hopeless and feel bowled over, trampled on by evil that has come to you individually, maybe in the distant past, maybe recently, maybe yesterday. And in your heart of hearts, you have your fist clenched, and you're saying, how can God be good? How can He be a sovereign and allow this to happen to me? What hope is there? And God says to, through little Mary to you to follow her example by looking to the past of God's faithfulness to His promises all the way back to Abraham, up to the present, through current history, decade after decade, century after century. No force, no evil that holds its arm up against him is able to stand. He gives us enough victory to keep us encouraged, to look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will say, Babylon, Babylon is fallen once and forever. I have made every enemy to drink the wine of their wrath, my wrath, the wrathful wine of their fornication. I've made them drunk with it and allowed them to fall on their own swords and for hell itself to be thrown into the lake of fire. God humbles the proud. Don't give up.
That's not the end of the story. God exalts the humble. Young Mary says, I know Herod says he's king of the world. I know Caesar Augustus says he's king of the world. But I'm telling you, my God will exalt me above them because my God is manifested in Jesus Christ. And it's only those on the side of Jesus who win. What is humility? What is humility? C.S. Lewis said it this way. This is the way he described a humble person. Listen to the theme. Don't imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He'll not be a kind of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who enjoys so much joy in life. And he enjoys it so easily, it appears. He will not be thinking about humility. That person will not be thinking about himself at all. Humility is not just, not, not a poor self-esteem. Humility is not an aw shucks attitude, I don't deserve anything. Humility is not uh, retreat, it's not passivity. It is this joyful approach to life. That doesn't mean giddiness. It doesn't mean laughing when tears are called for. What C.S. Lewis is describing is someone who is anchored in the hope of the gospel. The reason, as Proverbs says, someone can laugh at the future is that they know that Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. It's not the person who stays glued to the television or to social media all day, every day, allowing them to make you hopeless. It is rather the one who, yes, remains informed, but turns your eyes regularly to say, wow, the odds seem against you, but you've never lost a battle yet, and your promise is that you're going to win, and Babylon the Great will fall. So in faith, today, I'm going to be joyful. Humility, in other words, is not self-disdain. Humility is confidence in the conquering Christ. God exalts the humble. He makes great the lowly. What is greatness? I went through the Bible one time and I, I searched every occurrence of great and greatness and I put it together in this paragraph. From Genesis to Revelation, this is how God's Word defines true greatness. God is greatness. No other God is. Even unbelievers must begrudgingly admit His greatness. Because He is greatness, His love, mercy, works of creation, and and redemption are greatly to be praised. Great is His faithfulness. His Son, Jesus, is the great shepherd of His people as well as our high priest. Jesus, our Redeemer, is also the King of the greatest 
kingdom with the greatest, most glorious laws which make human beings flourish. Therefore, no nation or individual can be great without acknowledging God, receiving salvation from and living in obedience to Christ. A nation that is then is only great when it is known for honoring God and blessing the world. An individual is only great who honors God and blesses others. A person can only be made great when strengthened by the Lord. A great person practices and teaches God's Word to others. The truly great person is humble, childlike, and serves children personally. Simply put, God is greatness, so people are only great when they imitate Him. What does it mean for God to exalt the humble and make them great? It means that we humble ourselves before a truly great Savior. And by following Him, obeying Him, courageously responding to His grace, He makes us great. Not for our honor, but for the honor of being in His army. And in that that numberless host someday who will sing forever, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. No matter how helpless you feel, small you feel, you say, Pastor, you're calling us to do hard things and I can't do hard things. I can't do them anymore or I'm too small. I'm a child. I'm bedridden. I'm I'm not even able to come physically to church. What can I possibly do? Oh, those are the kinds of odds God loves. Let me give you this example. I have a friend named Jerry Gutierrez. He was a missionary for a number of years in Peru and then in Chile, and he worked with uh, in Washington, D.C., among presidents and vice presidents and, and congressmen and senators. And he's a great evangelist. When he was a college student, he came under the influence of a professor named Guzman. Guzman rightly pointed out the injustices that were occurring in Peru, but his solution was that the, the, that, that the only way to conquer, the only way to uh, reverse the wrongs that were being done is to follow the tenets of Marxism. And so he, he gathered around himself a small group of loyalists, including my friend Jerry, and he created the Shining Path Guerrillas, a terrorist group that wrecked havoc on, on Peru for many years and occasionally still does. It convinced my friend Jerry that uh, if they if they followed the, the tenets of Marxism, they would overtake the government and they would make all wrongs right and really stand up for the oppressed. My friend Jerry came into contact with a, with a, a girl he thought was really beautiful. Her name was Ruthie Marshall. The problem was she was the daughter of a Presbyterian missionary. You can imagine her father uh, was not too happy about her dating him, and she didn't date him. 
But to spend any time with her, he had to endure Mr. Marshall explaining the gospel to him. Mr. Marshall knew that he was up against a, 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 a spiritual force here. And time was running short because the, 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 the Marxists in Peru were so confident, so had so much confidence in Jerry that they, they were going to send him to the Soviet Union, in, to Moscow, to be trained to be the leader of their movement in Peru. It was, it was a week away. So Mr. Marshall wrote a note to his supporters in America and said, I need you to pray. I need you to pray specifically for Jerry Gutierrez that he would come to Christ. A little girl, elementary school, didn't know any better but to pray for Mr. Gutierrez. And not only so, but to write him a note and tell him that she was praying for him. She wrote it on her stationery, which was in the shape of a teddy bear. It just read this way, Mr. Gutierrez, Jesus loves you, and I'm praying for you. Jerry said, that note broke my back. He gave his life to Christ. The most powerful terrorist in Peru, with great hopes even among the leaders in the Soviet Union, was taken down with the mighty blow of a little girl's note on teddy bear stationery. Just the kind of odds God loves. And transformed him into a mighty preacher of the gospel of Christ. The only real force that can bring life and liberty and justice and joy. And so the Savior comes down to us today and of all things fuels us for our battle with this simple meal called the Lord's Supper. And the devil shudders when God's people listen to the Word of God and appropriate it by faith by taking the Lord's Supper and saying, Lord Jesus, draw me ever closer to yourself and empower me with your power for the coming of the kingdom.